This is a happy day in 2023 because this, this is my first time this year to talk to Matt again. Hi, Matt. Good to see you. Good to see you. Um, Matt is a philosopher and an author and a, a guy who has a great job that causes him to travel a lot and probably keeps him from writing as much as he'd like to write. <clears throat> but um, because philosophy doesn't really pay the bills yet. <laughs> but um, Matt was saying that he would kind of like to approach this question that Sevilla and I were skirting around when we talked last week about what is reality. And uh, I think it's really apropos to talk about that because just today I was listening to a long lecture by James Lindsay about the, the uh, action of a number of people who are attempting to negate the real for their own purposes. And so I think it's important to be able to talk about what is the real and um, how do we know what reality is? How do we talk about reality? And so you said you had some ideas and I'm eager to hear them. I want to, and, and I want to, as it were, uh, jump off the diving board of your verb negate, because I think that's important here. A lot of ways to talk about the real. It seems to be the combinatory explosive subject par excellence. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, how many ways can you use us uh, a paperclip creatively? Remember, we were told that in uh -huh. middle school, high school. Well, the the avant garde probably can find the five ways that nobody would think of, but the truly creative person will have a larger, wider number. Mm -hmm. But maybe the good, the kind person will find how it can be useful to someone. Three mm -hmm. different kinds of imagination there. I'm not saying one is better than the other, but maybe in a, in a world where things are buzz formation and really um, meant to be encoded bombs, you would have class warfare. The one type would say, always be compassionate with your paperclip or always be combinatory explosive. We need innovation, innovation for the sake of innovation. And then the other one would say, we just need those few things which are refined, right? And you, mm -hmm. one could probably spin their wheels indefinitely hopping between those positions. But when talking about the real, I'm starting to come around to the way Verveke filters his practice. I don't know if you've listened to his lectures on After Socrates. I got halfway through the first one. Same. I, I haven't listened to any in their entirety except the most recent. Okay. I would recommend that one to you. I think the others were hors d'oeuvres, in my opinion, to this meat and potatoes, where he talks about the temptation of a Greek word. I, I don't know in the lecture title. But the point so far in that our video, which I, again is meaty, he talks about a lot of cognitive science. Whereas I think those earlier videos were him preparing the audience to hear what he has to say about cognitive science. Mm -hmm. And what I think he has to say about cognitive science in that video is the multi aspectuality and he calls it the thread. And all that to say, this impinges on the real. That paperclip example is an example of the multi ways of looking at the same thing 
not exhausting what the thing is so that the thing disappears. Because in a weird way, when we grow up, our child self disappears. That's kind of what growing is, right? Mm -hmm. The prior disappears in the future. What do you think of that, though? That, that relation between the invisible and the visible of the past disappearing in the present in order for the present to manifest. Well, that's a, it's really interesting because the way my mind tends to work is that the past is, is in a sense more real because it has, a, I mean, roughly speaking, if you were talking about say quantum physics where <clears throat> the way it becomes a particle, <laughs> once it becomes a particle, it's a thing. I mean, it's uh, visible, it's concrete, right? But, but in the, in the now and in the future, well, I mean, who knows what the now is? Cause how long is the now? But anyway, in the future, if it's all speaking quantum physically, if it's all just probability waves, then, then there isn't any According to the physicist, let's talk that way. According to the okay. physicist, it, there isn't anything concrete. But when you start speaking spiritual, when you start speaking biblically, faith is the substance of things hoped for. So things hoped for are future possibilities. And faith is to be able to believe in the substance, in the reality of that thing that is hoped for in the future. So so it's interesting that you say that the visible and the invisible, that the past in many ways is invisible, depending on what you're talking about in the past. Like you're, you're, you're absolutely right. When, when I raise my daughters, the saddest thing is like you have this little six month old who's just so delightful to be with and you get to know them and you know their personality and you know everything about them. And then one day that little person isn't there anymore. It's a different person. And now it's a one-year-old that's starting to have will. And then that little person who is just a delight to be with turns into a two-year-old who has a completely different take on will, you know, me, mine, no. <laughs> and, and so you keep falling in love with this little person and then they keep disappearing and they never come back. That person is now in everywhere except in my mind and heart, that person is invisible. But but probably inside my adult daughters, all those persons still exist somewhere. I mean, that that's, that's a mystery, isn't it? And that's where I think exactly somewhere. As I've been reading the synoptic gospels, mm -hmm. right? Just a fancy way of saying the gospels, but giving them a function. Well, it's all of them except John, right? Yeah, or yeah. or which I don't know. I didn't. Yeah, Matthew, Mark, and Luke are the synoptic gospels. The early in my reading habit, Saint Maximus the Confessor, I was reading this morning, was talking to someone in a letter about what Saint Gregory the theologian or St. Gregory of Nyssa talked about when he said, we are portions of God. Now that could buzz in a certain person's mind 
of Spinoza, Spinoza, watch out, watch out, panentheism, watch out. Am I a drop of rain hitting the ocean of God and then I disappear in God, losing my parts, being dismembered? Mm-hmm. Well, St. Gregory predated by hundreds of years Spinoza. Mm-hmm. But even so, are we talking about carbon dating when we talk about these church fathers? Whichever one is first is older, more ancient, and therefore closer to the real thing known as fire, right? Or, and this comes back to St. Gre- Saint Maximus the Confessor, he lightly said, but I think it was an eloquent, eloquent phrase, the habit of scripture is to say, he might, have, might as well have said, the habit of scripture is to formulate. So he saw the canon, or he saw the library, or he saw the ordering. I'm begging the, I'm, I've already assumed what I tried to prove. He assumed that when he surveyed the field of the prophets, of the Psalms, of the synoptics, that there was a habit built in. And I think what you could imply through one of those P's, aside from the proposition, but the participating, a habit inbuilt, encoded, in order to follow it wherever it goes, would require us to develop a habit. The same, at least one according to our nature, what we are, in order to keep up with and hold pace the habit of the scripture. And I think implicitly we do this all the time. And what else is a skill? But mimicking the habit of your chosen profession. Uh, How do, I mean, we learn to talk by talking with people. So that's, that's a weird example, maybe a fringe example, language as a skill, but maybe something more, apprentice-like, being a carpenter. I could read the book, but the habit of carpentry is not encoded by a book. It's encoded by a a human being doing the thing multi-aspectually that has to be, as it were, shadowed by the novice. Mm -hmm. Maybe in a weird way, growing up. I mean, we don't simply mean the number of ticks on the side of the door when they're three versus when they're 18. That's true. But also there's a, like you said, the spiritual dimension of emulation. I think there's a fruitful distinction to be found somewhere between imitation and emulation. We imitate our heroes, but what do, but do we always, we imitate our heroes and we emulate their what? Virtues? But how would, you see what I'm saying here? Mm-hmm. But sometimes the ones we, imitate, we don't always emulate one-to-one everything about them. We emulate some things to the exclusion or selection of not others. What were you about to say? Yeah, to? yeah. Well, one of the things that jumped into my mind was the way um, the, the thing that I always noticed about my daughters is that they got my smile because I spent a lot of time face-to-face with them, Okay looking at each other. And so when you're looking at each other and you're playing games and you're smiling and you're talking, so they, they emulated, they imitated. I don't know how, what that is, my smile. So they both have my smile, but 
when they were little kids, they had their father's walk because they walked behind him and they imitated his walk. <laughs> so now they don't have his walk anymore, but, but boys will often carry their father's walk into their adulthood because they're always observing their father and they're observing him walking. And, um, and they, they tend to get more of their mother, mother's facial characteristics and more of their father's walk. Um, I don't know what that means, except that there does seem to be some sort of selectivity in imitation. Mm. But, but then there's so much more than that, because the other thing that came to my mind was handwriting. How okay. handwriting is something that when a child begins to learn, this is all part of growing up. You have to learn to write. Yeah. You can't learn to write without writing. You can't grow up without acting. Yes. Action is required for any sort of growth, right? So, so when you first teach a child to, to print or to write, you can teach them everything you want about doing it according to Parker penmanship or whatever kind of penmanship you're teaching. They don't even really teach cursive anymore, but when I was a kid, they taught penmanship. Mm -hmm. Nevertheless, when they finish their penmanship lessons and they write every day, habitually writing every day, something idiosyncratic in everybody's writing starts to take place, right? So there's an imitation that's imitating what you're being taught, but then something else is entering in from the individual that's taking over that. In and I would want to say, okay. and I would want to say the marker of the person, which is not visible in the pigmentation of the eye, the rate at which the fingernails grow back after clipping them. It can't be isolated in any one of these like genetic expressions of movement nevertheless, finds its way through the pipe of extreme ascetic practice. And we like to think of that as, oh, the monk up on the mountain. Mm -hmm. But what you said about handwriting, I think equally applies. It's an extreme ascetic practice. Yeah. Like my best friend's dad would say from the military, there's a way to do it. And then there's the right way. <laughs> As extreme aesthetic, an extreme technique. Well, but, I, I happen to have a couple of friends who are concert pianists, and you talk about extreme aesthetic practice. They practice eight hours a day. You know, they're in their they're in their fifties now. They've been practicing eight hours a day since they were little kids. And there's no way to become that kind of a pianist without that kind of extreme aesthetic practice. And um, that works something into you that's not only, thankfully, they're both Christians. So, so they're not just their piano playing. They're also wonderful, giving, helpful, really special people to be around. But then when you listen to them play the piano, man, you can tell. Um, it goes beyond imitation and becomes something entirely other. But it all starts with that imitation. Remember when St. Paul said, I knew a man, he was taken up to the third heaven. Mm -hmm. And I don't know if he was in the body or out of the body. I would say he was not out of the body, but he saw things that cannot be uttered. Mm -hmm. He heard things that cannot be uttered. While the person would give you the coat off their back, nevertheless, when they sit at the piano and begin playing, you have the alterity, that almost chilling, 
because you know the difference other there. Music coming through them, all those hours coming through them, the imper what did T.S. Eliot say? The impersonal coming out with its rigid formation. And yet, because it was trained, it's rigid to beauty. And yet, for me, the miracle of that, to go with the St. Paul thing, taking up to the third heaven, yet not coming out of the body. The miracle is that the one plane doesn't disappear. I mean, it's not a given that when we reach a limit and cross over, that we could come back. Like, in the... I think it's very interesting how people talk about the whole psychedelic exploration. Mm -hmm. Oh, if I could see beyond my limitations. So I'll take this thing or I'll go to this place. And then all the while assuming I'll come back and I'll be able to Plato's cave wise, share what I've learned, or I'll share a, a cautionary tale. But to my mind, there's less of a chance of coming back through those means mm -hmm. than to go through the pipeline of extreme ascetic practice. And yes, at times, busting out the piano, almost giving people the terrors of where has my child gone to then be able to stop and lift the fingers. And there you are. Mm -hmm. To me, that's that's a that's a. Kierkegaard called it the sublime pedantic, that the ballerina could land on point and then walk off stage and eat a hamburger. These things are not mutually exclusive. I don't know. I mean, to, I think that belongs with the conversation of reenchantment. But I just think that in order for these things to come to be, we do have to talk about practice. Well, you brought up something super important here because like with the whole psychedelic thing, I can't remember the phrase that they use. I, I think I even heard Jordan Peterson use it, but but then he still talks a lot about psychedelics, but it's this idea of um, you're trying to get something without being willing to work for it, right? Mm -hmm. Yep. And um, in any realm, when you do that, quite often you don't come back. You either end up dead or you end up in prison. You know, like if you want to go steal, rob something from a corner. There's a situation here in our town recently where five guys masked up, ran into a camera store, stole thousands of dollars worth of camera equipment, ran out, jumped in their car and took off. But the, the clerk, bless his heart, thought maybe he could stop them. He ran out of the store to follow them and they shot him three times. Thankfully, he's going to survive. But oh, good. The onlookers took pictures. They got a picture of the license plate, the car, the people. All of them were picked up an hour away from here the next day, brought back to jail. They're all in their early 20s, 21, 22, 23. They thought they were going to get something for nothing, but what they're going to get is they're going to lose their lives, man. I mean, all the best years of their lives are going to be spent in prison. And... Anyway, it's it's just such a tragic thing when you see that kind of thing happening. So I mean, yes. psychedelics is one way in which that can happen. 
But another way in which that can happen is falling into one of the things that worries me about our little corner is there are so many interesting rabbit holes that you can go down. We're all working real hard to help each other not get into conspiracy theory rabbit holes, but there are a lot of philosophy rabbit holes that people can stumble into. And um, a lot of, and, and in this whole area of enchantment, I love the idea of re-enchanting the world, but it's also possible to fall into some of these holes that tip too much into magic, tip too mm-hmm. much Absolutely. into dark yes, arts. And, and it's so subtle. And how do you see? So this is the this thing I talked about at the beginning, this James Lindsay lecture on the negation of the real. He's talking about what's happening in political correctness kind of thing in the last 20, 30 years in this country. Um where it feels like they're trying to take, trying to get us to acknowledge that there is nothing real because then we'll appoint them to be the ones that replace it with whatever their vision is. They never tell you what their vision is. They just tell you what isn't real, what isn't good, you know, all the, all the negative stuff. But in his lecture, he goes all the way back and says, this is not an idea that's 20 or 30 years old. This is an idea that's many thousands of years old. It goes all the way back to the beginning mm-hmm. when there was an enemy who was very subtle and uh-huh. told a very subtle lie. And so, you know, how can we help each other not stumble into some of these, these pits that are trying to, because they're very captivating. Mm-hmm. I get captivated. I think, oh, well, that's interesting. And I'll start following that path and I'll look up this guy or that guy. And I got really interested in Hegel last year. But when I heard James Lindsay talking today about some of what Hegel was really about, I'm like, man, you could oh, get yeah. in big trouble, not just the Nazi side of Hegel, but some of the other stuff where he was really into dark alchemy and uh I like what you said earlier in this regard about the now being immeasurable. One of the things that Hegel did to my mind was, or in my mind, was, and it serves as a sort of vice grip if one doesn't extricate themselves sooner than later. He's a quote unquote dialectical thinker, which means in his case that negation and affirmation are one and the same thing. Yeah. Yeah. The coin for him is always spinning in the perpetual now. So as he posits the now, he is simultaneously negating the now. And then he extends that to every possible perception, which means that you're always right and you're always wrong. So you can always learn, but you're never learning. And so it's great if you do want to be, I, I mean, I don't know what it's good for. It's not good for anything, obviously, but and I and some people say it's a caricature of his view. Fair enough. But uh, all I want to say with that is the importance of being clear what we mean by now and what we don't mean by now is important for a human being because until you have the now straight, you can't conceive of a practice because a practice is something that borrows from the here and now in order to afford a future and the the hope and the prayer in the middle 
is the sustaining wind in the sails. And all of that is meaningless if you cut it off at the beginning by crunching every single thing that could happen into the now. It's fine as a writing practice. You can, you can take that paperclip and make it mean everything. It's fine. It's good to think associationally or with associations. It's, 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 it's lovely. But it's just knowing that that's not, that's a thimble. That's not much. It's not much. It's not much. Well, when he was talking, the phrase that came to my mind was one that McGilchrist uses all the time, which I is not it's not original with McGilchrist. Um, the coincidence of opposites. Mm-hmm. Now, there's been a lot of philosophers that have talked about that, but but there's a way in which some people think of the coincidence of opposites as being um, the opposites actually become the same thing. So basically, if you think it through far enough, they zero each other out. They come in from both ends and then there's zero in the middle. Well, that's a negation of the real. If you take that far enough, you're you're saying nothing really exists. Except my insight. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. With the emphasis on my. <laughs> yes. There is no altar because the altar is between my ears of this billiard ball Look at, I just put all the balls in the hole. They're all gone. I did it. I did it. But I mean, if you it's can the get ultimate, other what, people. It's the ultimate shark pool. Yeah. If you, you, you need to get other people to believe that there is no reality and that, that everything is a coincidence of opposites. And at the coincidence of opposites, it all becomes no thing. The no thingness of, you know, I mean, I hear a lot of people in my corner talking about um, being is on one end and no thing is no thingness is on the other end. And then so between them, there is nothing, you know, um, somehow I think we have to hang on to the reality that there is a creator God and that Mm -hmm. he is good and that he is not a no thing. He's okay. He's not a thing the way we are things. I, I totally agree with that. But but when you start playing with language and saying that not a thing is the same thing as no thing, no thingness, um, it, it gets too easy for people to suck that up in their heads as, oh, well, there's really nothing there. It's just a, a, a social construct or a, a, an emergence that comes out of our social relationships and and if we have enough social relationships, some God will emerge out of that. That mm. Well, where did we all come from in the first place? I, th- I mean, that's the question nobody really wants to talk about. So what the, this talking about God as the one, mm-hmm. on one hand, I can completely understand that because he is completely unique and beyond our capacity to imagine at the same time he has shown himself in his word and and told us who he is and um a lot of people when they use the one they use it to talk about some amorphous you know c.s lewis (laughs) was talking about these some of these people that are spiritual but not religious who liked to use this very spiritual language. And he said there was one young woman who began to realize her parents had raised her that way to think of the one. 
as this amorphous spirit in the world. And uh, she said, she, he said she began to realize when she was a young woman that somehow it had always seemed to her sort of like a gelatinous pudding, <laughs> right? There's no distinctiveness. So I think we also, when we think about the real, we also have to think about the- there It makes it common too. There is a distinctiveness. There's, we need to make distinctions. We can't leave everything in the fog. I agree with you. And I apologize for interrupting. I, I, with the fog and the, the pudding, what came to my mind is, yes, it makes it indistinct and consequently common. It's a status judgment. Mm -hmm. And it's a force. You know, Star yeah. Wars. You can use you can use the force. You can ad adapt the force to your own needs, right? And before that was the trope of the chosen one. It was rare, not common, uncommon. And then, as the movies were doled out, became more and more common until it became mitochondrial, whatever that thing is, right? It's something you could measure in in the blood count. And it was <laughs> it, it was just small and insignificant. In other words, common. And I'm, I really want to lay into that. You know, it's I, the uh, it's an abstract thing to say the human being is a microcosm of the macro. But when you start to play it out, you see that it's a magnet for all these other in isolation abstract terms. But when they're magnetized to it, they're not so abstract after all. How do you have an extreme aesthetic practice? without believing that man is a microcosm. Because otherwise then your practice, my practice, what suits you, suits you, what suits me, suits me. There's no universal. You know, my, my actions are, I mean, my hand is my foot. Your foot is your hand. It doesn't matter. And therefore what you do with your feet doesn't matter. What you do with your hands doesn't matter to, except to you as you, you know, come up with spontaneously things to do. But if there is such a thing as a micro-macro relationship, then an ascetic practice holds water. Or you have counterfeits that borrow from and are slightly derived from, and maybe they're on their way to becoming more refined. I mean, I, I'm not a gastro. Uh, when I, I don't really appreciate food, but I'm trying to learn. Right? I, I, I try to cook. And so I'm on my way. I'm a heretic when it comes to making things taste good, promote certain way of looking at things, but I'm trying not to be a heretic. I'm trying to use less salt or use less ingredients. I'm trying to pay attention to the lettuce, but these things take time, but they also take hope, right? You have to believe that it's worth not being a heretic with respect to reality. And so, so what's the actual definition of heretic when you're using it that way? That's this is the thing. I think Peugeot's a nice tonic to the one being a balloon that someone let go of, and there it goes. Because he'll he'll constantly take religious terms that have a long sweep of history and people in academia arguing about them, and he'll bring it to the kitchen table and say, Well, try that when you're eating with your wife and kids. In other words, can it be made a practice? And can it be a made a, can it be made a practice for a community, even a community of two? If not, then 
go and try to make it one. And if you can come back after the failure, good, you've learned. If you come back with five other people, congratulations, you might start a monastery or you might start a family. They're not so different because these things are bound by real activities that reflect the macro. And because they reflect it imperfectly, there's the possibility of gaining closeness. We can have better dinners, but it won't happen tomorrow, but we can set a path to make it happen in 20 years. These, and where the Christians come in and say, and you'll live forever, by the way, so have fun with it. Take your time. Don't be too hard on yourself. Death is not the end. You don't need to impress anyone. But eternal life is a long time where if you don't ever practice these things, it's going to feel like hell. And there's no way out. <laughs> you know? mm -hmm. I mean, you can talk about it from a very light way or you can go the whole Jonathan Edwards sinners in the hands of the angry God. But I like Peugeot's way of kind of making it not as tight. Well, I mean, that that to me is so key because I've always, when I, when I think about the scriptures in the gospel, I always think, is there a way I can explain this to uh, a child in a Sunday school class where it will be actually be true for them? Not just a, not just pablum, not just a, a cute little story that's going to inoculate them so that when they become an adult, they're not interested in it anymore, but really explain it to them in a way that's real and true. Is there a way I can explain it to somebody who's a little um, intellectually challenged, mentally challenged, a little simple? I don't know what terminology we are allowed to use anymore about that, but I've known some very simple people in my life who have such a beautiful spirit and when they talk about Christ, the language that they use is very, very simple and yet deeply profound. But so many of these practices that I hear about that are being worked on in people who are trying to avoid church, mm -hmm. these practices are either so esoteric or so intellectual or require such a long time to even understand what's being talked about that I don't see how it can scale down to um, down to everybody. And, and Christ came for everybody, not just for the intellectual few, not just for the people who can get off on deep, complicated philosophies with terminology that's opaque to almost everybody else. I think part of it is... I really like what Verveke has done with participation. Because I do think that is the key. It's in what 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 seals the deal for me in terms of participation not being optional is what you said about scale. And I would add to that cohesion. But I would also add to that the unconscious slowly becoming conscious of the fact that was there all along. We know we don't know everything, but we do know that in time we learn things. We also know 
on the third level, that because we know we learn, we learn things after a while, we can predict that after a while, we'll learn more things that we don't know now, even though we know we'll learn more things now than we know, <laughs> but we don't know what those things are yet. Yeah. And that's a consequence of aging, of prayer, of reading, of a lot of things we can't put our finger on. But we do know, we have a sense that it's a result of some decisions we made. And some places we put ourselves, some places we did not put ourselves. But we wouldn't want to be pressed in a corner to have to make a list of what those things are. All of that being said, I think we have... We have, we have the evidence of a habit. I appreciate the fact that Peugeot talks about eating and sleeping. These are things that everybody does. I went to a monastery and I remember a monk told me, you know, the, he was speaking of the Virgin Mary. And he said some things and then he said, we have to eat and we have to sleep. Those are necessities. The other things, they're, they're wants, but they're not needs. They're not bad, but they're not something that if we do not have them, we will be less than. And as you said, that's something someone could put on the back of a car as a bumper sticker to placate. But for him to say that in his practice as a monk, meant something to me because he had walked past the threshold where you can't step back from or you can you're free to but then you have to live with the fact that you wibble you know wobbled on both sides mm -hmm. so i think our propositions find their weight through our ascesis our asceticism and again i want to divorce that from the comfortable notion of it being some guy or girl on a snowy mountain away from us. Waking up in the morning to go to work is ascetic. Mm -hmm. If it's not, then I don't know what is. Because <laughs> one could sleep in, one could leave town, one could, one could do a lot of things. They can't do everything, but one could do a lot of other things, but one isn't. Even, even not going to work, but leaving town is an aesthetic practice that will have its consequences or to use a less abstract word, will have its fruit. I don't know what you think about this, but I was thinking about it this morning. I ultimately don't, I mean, I don't have answers to these things because I'm not, I'm not but the, uh, the, it's fun to, it, I don't know, Karen, I just think practices are important. And letting time bear itself out. I mean, Christ said everybody has a cross. That means everybody has a cross. Or no, no, no. He said, if you will come after me, then take up your cross. So I guess not everybody has a cross. Or not everybody has to have a cross. Not everybody takes it up. That's a choice. Everybody has a cross, but not everybody takes it up. And I might have, you know, I might have left mine in L.A. Or, you know, whatever it is, right? But one can go back to it. One can. Yes. Well, I mean, I think often about myself and my husband because ever since I've known him, he has been an extremely disciplined person. He gets up and goes to work every day. He 
Um, man, he, when he has free time, he manages our finances. So he takes care of the stock market and the savings and insurance and paying the bills. I mean, he takes care of all that stuff. Um, every morning he exercises every night before he goes to bed, he exercises. He's extremely ascetic in his eating behavior. Um, he makes sure that he never overeats. And most of the time he eats just hardly anything during the day. And then he'll have something at, at night at meals time. He's just very, very controlled. And for many years, I really resented that because it was something that I wasn't living up to. And it scared me to think that I had to live up to that level of discipline because I was never raised that way. And, you know, I'm a creative type. And so I, I can excuse myself from not involved being involved in those practices because after all, I'm a creative type, you know, but then over the years, I see the fruit of his discipline and I see the fruit of my lack of discipline. And, and so in the last 10 years or so, I've had to really change my whole thought about it and just live in admiration of his discipline and where that has gotten him as an individual. And the fruit of that is also the life that I get to live because he's also caring for me. And uh, I compare that to, to where I was before. I, I mean, even now there's areas where I'm not as disciplined as I need to be and as I should be. And my habits aren't where they should be. And I see the fruit of that because when I had this during COVID, I gained some weight. And then after I had this surgery, I gained a little bit more weight and, now I'm trying to lose it, but it's really hard when you haven't built the habit into your life of being ascetic in that area of, of exercising strong control on your, um, your impulses, you know, impulsive eating and things like that. So I can really see the difference in just looking at, at our situation. But the great part of it is that now I don't have a resentment towards him anymore. I can really just be in gratitude for who he is and be thankful and appreciate him. And, um, and but then I have then I get into a path where I start resenting myself and my own stupidity. And that's a very bad path to get into because then I'm focusing on me, me, me all the time instead of keeping my focus on him, him, him. So um I think it's always a matter of threading some kind of a needle. Absolutely. And Christianity is the orthodoxy is paradoxy. The, uh, we're told that the kingdom of heaven belongs to children. And we're supposed to be wise as serpents. What you said about the fruits of discipline reminded me of Jesus told his disciples, he put them on the side of the road and said, all right, we're on our way to Jerusalem. I'm going to be given to the hands of the elders and the tribes or the scribes and the chief priests. And they're going to nail, they're going to, they're going to kill me and they're going to torture me. And then the son of man will rise on the third day. I mean, then what does that say about the disciples' future? I mean, what are they supposed to live up to or down to now? But then after the resurrection, after the fruit, 
hundreds of years in the in the making, hundreds of years after, the church in beautiful, ornate, multi-ethnic buildings sings melodiously that he ascended the cross voluntarily as if he was a king stepping up to his throne. Is it because we're sentimental creatures? I think it's a macro of that story you told, that parable you told of discipline. If it's not real, then it's not real. But if it is real, then whatever it relates to becomes real. If it isn't real already. I mean, otherwise, so again, the, the, the concept of the cross, a person could say, oh, you know, it's just a, a mythological way of speaking or, you know, who wouldn't have said that back then? But we see that we're uh, Tom Holland style, the benefactors of that radical discipline. And yet it's couched through the lips of our Lord who said the kingdom of heaven belongs to children. So this paradox of we have a lot to live up to. And our goal is humility. To become small so that he can lift us up very high. And that it's not sentimental. But of course, it will sound sentimental if one puts a period at the end of the proposition and doesn't put a comma there to go down to the practice. I've seen kids go up to icons and they kiss them very calmly. <laughs> it's, it, they know what they're doing. I think ch children like hoarder, especially young ones. They, they want to know where their bed is. And they want to know when it's, maybe they don't want to sleep right now, but they want to sleep eventually. And they're going to sleep <laughs> just as they're going to wake up and play. The, uh, But, and it, I don't think it's a matter of selling that to someone, but I think it's a matter of, some, someone said, acquire the Holy Spirit and thousands around you will be saved. People are in the image of God and they have the eyes in the image of God. They see, they see people, they see practices, they see the invisible, so to speak. It's what they're, what they're willing to do, what they're able to do. And I think all that, we don't have to be the judges of, especially of ourselves, because we don't know ourselves. We're not asked to know ourselves. We don't have the injunction of the Greek above the arch and the door, know thyself. We don't have that injunction as Christians. So why, why act as if we do? Um, well, I also think there's a, something has to happen inside the person. <clears throat> um. I'll take myself as an example with my husband. He hasn't changed. The only thing that's changed is that I see it differently now. I see it differently because before I was resentful. Before I, I could also find myself being resentful of beautiful women. Because, you know, instead of thinking to myself, wow, they're so disciplined. 
and they really take care of their bodies and they eat properly. So they're, you know, they're, they're um, daughters of Eve. Mm. And, and, you know, they have that beauty of, they have that natural beauty. Instead of thinking that, because that would require me to think in terms of, but I'm not doing that. I'm not disciplined enough to do that. And therefore that's why I'm not beautiful. Instead, I could be resentful of that and thinking, oh, they spend so much time and money on surface things when it's really the inner beauty that matters. Okay. But, but then a person goes through some things in life that bring them right down to the very bottom. And, um, and it's much harder to have that snarky, judgmental, critical spirit towards what you see when you've really been emptied out. So you could be a person one day who looks with resentment and anger and frustration at something. And the very next day, you could see that same thing as something radiantly beautiful because this huge shift has taken place inside. And... Um, I noticed another shift like that just this last couple of months after I had this surgery, because during the first month I was really in a significant amount of pain and didn't have very much mental clarity. And so the kinds of things that I normally would keep at bay by being busy with stuff, started floating up into my consciousness, you know, regrets about the past, regrets about my lack of action. Um, all that stuff starts floating around in the ether. And I had to really work through that with the Lord, through the word, through liturgy and all those things to come to a place of being able to see that I had let certain things in my life get out of balance. And so I think there's just different things that happen in life that open our eyes again to a greater truth. And you had mentioned in your email about our conversation today that one of the things you wanted to talk about was the fact that DNA is in formation, in forming, forming us in an inner way, I think is what you meant, an inner transformation. Would that be a correct interpretation of your idea? Yeah, yeah, as well as the, the external uh, fruit. And, and so you said DNA is in formation. Why not our hopes and dreams? And so what did you mean by that? Why did you connect DNA and inner transformation and hopes and dreams? Because I'm determined not to read the Bible or practice liturgy in a sentimental way, self-consciously. I think there will be sentimental residue, but I don't want to practice these things with sentimentality. Because I think that's giving too much away to the modernist frame. Oh, you know, it's not real, but it can be real insofar as you feel something as a result. Oh, I see what you're saying. That's not what I'm talking about at all. I don't want to fabricate a hope. Oh, man, I was at Woodstock. I was there. Sort of nostalgia, right? Uh -huh. That's very cheap in comparison to if you could have it every day. Well, be careful when someone says having it every day. Who, who am I to say that? Who is someone to say that? We're humans. What does that even mean? I don't want to go too long with this, but again, with the thesis of we can approach these wonderful things without falling into the ugly ditch of sentimentality. But how? I'm still thinking that through. But one of the things that I think is important 
is our age now is predicated on cheap thrills and vicarious experiences. So it, it will become, it, there will be a lot more around flooding the attention gates, but there's no reason to despair because children have been children in every generation. To a perennial problem, there's a perennial innocence, but I wanna come back, back down to earth. The example, I wrote this down in preparation for our conversation about the hopes and dreams. Before I give the example that I wrote down, the Bible often talks in the Old Testament or the Torah, the Bible often talks about the human being as land. There's the land, the land, the land, the land is where you will go, the promised, but also the land being defiled, the land being sexually immoral, the land crying out with the blood of Abel. God being the husband, taking back the land, redeeming, all right? What's the understanding, if not a sentiment? So what's the understanding of a human being being comparable to land? I think one of the things is we say it, we should, we should listen for echoes in daily practice because that's usually a marker of reality. So a real estate agent without blushing We'll say, what are the three most important things in real estate? Location, location, location. Why? Because that doesn't change. It matters where it is. Place. You can't build another oceanfront just anywhere. Now, they say that, again, without any convoluted kazooetry. They don't have to give you 27,000 arguments and reasons. They don't have to give you five seminars to wait until the end. They just they say it. They're like, of course, location. Because they couldn't be what they are without it. It's so axiomatic. So it's an indicator of reality. That a human being would be compared to land, I think is something akin to saying, we're not disposable. We're not going anywhere. What changes in us may seem to be a huge change that eradicates or evaporates everything, but it's not. We do come out the other side of our traumas. In the same way that the land lies fallow so that it can recover to be fruitful in the proper season. And in the same way that a calendar captures the perennial nature of the land-sky relationship, so too liturgy, service, order, a beginning, middle, and end, very importantly, end to some things and a beginning of other things. And just a, even, even good things have an end. They must, because it's order. Beginning, middle, and end of things, that is the calendar version of the human being. So to say the seasons and times of land is to say the liturgical effects of the human. These things are not, to use a Peugeotian phrase, arbitrarily, metaphorically, they sound nice together. I, I think they're reflective. Now, it's not enough to say I think, but again, can we ground this out in a practice? Can you wake up in the morning and say, I wake up with the sun? Or do you want to go deeper and say, I have a spirit which doesn't sleep. So I'm going to have vigil and wake up before the sun because I can. I'm not a slave of the elements. 
I don't wake up when the sun comes up. I, I, I can, but I don't have to. These things are, again, it's, it's a very powerful, the kids might want to say resistance. It's punk rock, but it's on its way to becoming very sound. And again, someone can laugh it off and say, you're just talking about waking up earlier. It might just be that, if it, it, but it also can be webbed into a larger story and framework that if given decades makes a vineyard versus tall grass. Not that there's anything inherently wrong with either one, but it's what do you want? And I think now this speaks to the freedom of a human being. What do we want? What are we willing to do? But also I think we have to be careful not to attach to a practice, a predetermined guaranteed end. Yeah, that's key. That's totally key. Because resent then can come up later, if not sooner. Oh, you know, I thought if I would do this, I would. Blah, blah. I mean, I, I think we have to be all right with the process. And in order to be all right with the process, I think we, again, it's not arbitrary. Oh, it's so nice that God made the creation. And at every level, he said, it is good. Oh, that's nice. But if we slow down, I think that indirectly tells us it's okay to enjoy the ride. More than okay, it's good. It's so good for the land of life fallow at a certain time. It may not feel good, but that just means we have to educate our feelings. And even, even if we don't end up educating our feelings, it doesn't make us a bad person. These are options in a wider frame of rigid reality. I mean, we can't get outside as a Christian. We can't get outside the reality of the first two chapters of Genesis. And I'm not saying that from an old world, new world you know, 5,000-year-old earth perspective. I'm talking about the way it's laid out, that God didn't make it all at once. He made things, he looked at it, saw that it was good, named it, and then he moved on. And then he stopped with the Sabbath. We can't escape that liturgy. And it's not a matter of, oh, we can't escape it, we're under Pharaoh, we have to just deal with it and make our bricks. I mean, a person could look at that, but eventually you're going to see a flower blooming and you're going to say, wow, that's nice. <laughs> I mean, eventually we're going, but it's being, I think it's just, it's, you know, the, the fancy way to say it is being embodied, but I think a Christian way to say it is just living by faith, patience, long suffering, all those words that sound 17th century, 18th century. Well, in, in, in that vein, I think two of the maybe very practical examples, maybe I would call them practical, would be prayer and praise. Yeah. Because um, there are practices, and if you practice them with some idea that there's a guaranteed end result, <laughs> you're going to be filled with all sorts of disappointment because you're approaching it from the wrong perspective. Because God isn't a tool that we can command when we pray, right? Um, there are mysterious reasons for prayer. One of them is that somehow as we're praying, God teaches us things about what we should be praying for and what we should be wanting. Because he, at least in me, while, I, while I'm verbalizing, while I'm verbalizing the words, he's, he's adding nuance. He's showing me directions. He's... Um, 
maybe steering me away from something or making me more hungry for it. Or there's all kinds of things that happen during prayer. And it's very difficult to have a practice of prayer because the enemy doesn't want us to have a practice of prayer. So, so when the scripture talks about the sacrifice of praise or the sacrifice of the, you know, you sacrifice the fruit of your lips, it is a sacrifice. It's a small sacrifice because the payoff is so amazing because when, when you do pray, you, you are experienced fellowship with the Lord, not always in a, emotional way not always in a feeling way but but a consistent practice of prayer is a consistent opportunity to have fellowship with christ and so there are many reasons why we should be making that sacrifice beyond just the reason of oh i have this list of things or you know um and and to learn to be thankful all of those things happen during the practice of prayer. And with, with that, one of my favorite phrases is, it is possible. And I mean, as you said, with the word prayer, it's so easy. I remember growing up, it was so easy for me to think those high, high flying words of Christianity, prayer, holiness, those are things that if I could say them, they would they would like make my jaw stronger. They're big words. But th while that's true, they're big words because they have big people emulating them. Or people became big by emulating them. And they became big in the same way that a number of rocks becomes a mountain. They participated in the God that made everything and makes everything and stay, stands by everything. When we don't give up, God, we, we're, we're reflecting the fact that God doesn't give up. And so I was thinking this morning, the word holiness, it's very easy to make that a platonic one, right? Oh, I'll get around to figuring out what holiness means when I'm 82 years old, right? Like I, that's a mistake. An alcoholic is holy. That, you know, that infamous phrase, where's mom? Where's dad? They're gone because they're holy. But it's holy relative, relative to a bottle. They're set apart. You see how it works? Like, reality doesn't lie. Where, where's my uncle? Well, he's holy. He's at the, the racetrack. Always. Dedicated. He's observing. Now, someone could say to me, that's a very kind of cheeky way to use that word, man. It's sort of cruel, too. What else do you do say? I mean, I wouldn't say to the person, you're being evil going to that racetrack, because they're not intentionally being evil. They're not like, oh, I want to be evil. They, 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 they will report for themselves. So you're seeing it as they're just worshiping at the wrong altar. I would say that, yes. And I think they would agree that it's an altar. It's not mere horses running in a circle. No matter how hard they try to believe through 
self-deception, that it's just bigger atoms moving, horses on, on dirt. At another level down, it's just quarks. They can't, at the end of the night, looking in the mirror, believe that they believe that. It's an altar. Now, when they try to, the problem with our culture is if a person tries to voice that, they're put in a box. Dismissed. It's called fundamental. And so we're disinclined from using the language. <laughs> You're right. So we're disinclined to use the language that would help us communicate with our fellow man and with God in prayer. So we can't be afraid of our culture and we can't be afraid of, of using these words from our own lips. One way to forgive someone who has been holy relative to something that is not in the Bible is to see that it's how could I how could I blame them? They're at an altar. How could I how could I hate them? They're at an altar. We see that paperclip differently. And and we see it differently because we're having different experiences. An apple tree and an orange tree are not in the same place. Or excuse me, how shall I say this? A uh I don't know. A, Buffalo grass is not in the same place as an orange tree. They're both good, but they're not in the same place. Why should we pretend to be the Supreme Court when we're orange trees or buffalo grass? Well, now, there's, that there's doesn't... another way to look at it, though, yes. Matt, and that is that it's not so much that um, there's, a, there's an alternative to hating that person, and that alternative is to realize that because they're worshiping at they're not worshiping at God's altar, they're worshiping at at the, the altar of the God that they have chosen, that they're hungry. Mm. And and that if you know where the source of food is, you want to help them find the right source of food so that they can be nourished and and not starve to death. And uh Another weird example popped into my head just this last weekend, the 49ers, I'm, mm -hmm. in, I'm in the San Francisco area, the 49ers lost big, so they're not going to the Super Bowl, which was a disappointment to us because we wanted to have a Super Bowl party, but there's not much point in having a Super Bowl party if the 49ers aren't playing. So, <laughs> But there were some people that were super angry because the first quarterback got injured in the first quarter and then the quarterback that they brought in to replace him fumbled the ball made some mistakes kind of messed things up what you have to know about this quarterback is that i think san francisco's gone through four quarterbacks this year the first sec and second one got injured before this game and then the third one who's been doing a terrific job as the third string quarterback terrific undefeated i think he got injured in the first quarter. So this poor guy whose fourth string has hardly ever played. So he gets out on the field like a deer in the headlights, and he's got to mm. play this game. And it's the biggest game of the year, except for the Super Bowl. And everybody's watching. And when he makes some mistakes, everybody's angry with him. But my heart, because I'm a woman, <laughs> my heart is, 
this poor guy. He had his moment in the sun and he muffed it. And he's going to relive that game every day for the rest of his life, probably, unless he happens to be blessed with a strong faith and the Lord can help him forget it. So, so you can either be angry with somebody for what they've done, or you can see it from another side and recognize that, that they're missing out on, on the beauty that could be theirs, you know? So. And, and in, with the cohesion and grounding that fumble in reality, there's that, as you said, tendency to project onto them a story of acquittal or a story of condemnation. And then the two sides can debate which side is closer to the real reason mm -hmm. fumble. In relation to everybody having an altar that they go to, connecting it with the ascetic practice, this will sound Prejoian. A door is not a window. It's like a window, but it's not a window. A door certainly is not a turtle. It's in no way like a turtle, not that I can think of, but it's more like a window than a turtle. Therefore, when I open it, I can walk through it. When I open the window, I can walk through it. If I open a turtle, I can walk through it, but, but it, it's quite different because I would have to tear the turtle apart. Now, in other words, things just don't let, things just don't admit you willy-nilly. The, in order to go to the horse race, you have to pay a ticket. In order to go to the altar of Christianity, in the Gospel of Matthew, it says, be reconciled to your brother if you're angry with him. Leave the gift at the altar and go back to your brother, be reconciled, and then come and offer up the offering. Mm -hmm. In the same way that you have to pay something to go into the stadium, you have to, you're expected to be reconciled. Anger is, I don't know what ang anger is, but it's I can at least talk about it similarly as I would the ticket price to go into the stadium to see horses run. These altars are not um, willy-nilly. They, you know, I could just, it doesn't matter if I'm angry with my brother as long as I have the money to go into the stadium. That tells you something about the altar. Really, it tell, it should, if we're given to a moment of reflection, it should tell us something. Nothing about this stadium cares that I'm angry with my brother. This altar of Christianity doesn't want my money, but it tells me I shouldn't bring in anger. Hmm. Well, Does that tell great, me about Matt. the altar? That's great, Matt. I mean, just the non-sentimental, can we practice it sort of thing. And really what we notice with practice is it gives us food for meditation. It gives us things to think about while we're moving. Hmm. And it, 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 it lets us, Let's, I mean, back to that land metaphor, communion, Eucharist, the high moment, the highest moment, bread and wine, body and blood, do this in remembrance. We can begin to meditate. What is bread? Where does bread come from? How is bread made? Why is it bread and not lobster? Things have admission, right? Bread, bread's a very, we can begin and we can't just make it up. If one goes, one sees. After time, one experiences. Then one comes back and meditates, and then one sees more. It doesn't happen overnight. It doesn't happen necessarily in a year, but it happens.
it is possible. Just in the same way, if I save my nickels and dimes, I can go into the stadium and see horses run. run. I'm not trying to belittle that. It is possible. So again, it's, it is a little bit of mind hypnotism. We have to tutor our minds to believe what we want to believe so that we can have good things. Comes back to that transcendental, right? People talk in some corners of the internet about the good, the true, and the beautiful. And these being above all other considerations. That's fine. But in the same breath, you can say, do we have to go pretty soon? No. The, uh, in the same breath, we could say, about I get the, so riveted by you that I don't dare look at the clock. And then I thought, well, I've got to, I've got to respect his time and I don't want to keep him too long. So I look at the clock and then you notice that I'm looking at the clock. Oh, it's all good. No, it's all good. The, so the good, the true and the beautiful, my problem with that is a bat, the flu, a laboratory. The good, the true, the beautiful. Correlation, not causation. Just as we can become paranoid about where something came from, how the mistake was made, who's to blame for the sin. I know it. I, I, I can put all the dominoes together. So too, we can be so paranoid about the glue that brings together the true, the good, and the beautiful. And so it's not enough just to say those three words. It's not even enough to say that they're transcendental. It gives us less than we, it gives us less than we know. It's that unearned wisdom that you had said before. And so the, the practice, the things just not willy-nilly admitting us, time, not judging one another, all of that's bound up in humility. Mm -hmm. And recognizing that we're, we're like the earth, we change, but not completely. We live through our changes. These things come together, not to a certain point, but they come together so that we wake up and go to sleep, wake up and go to sleep, have dinner with someone or with no one and make our choices to go into the stadium or not. And that's a story that everyone lives in. And I think it's where you would desire to have a community of like-minded people to begin practicing together. The, a strange thing happened in Texas the other day. There was a WrestleMania, a, res, a professional wrestling event called Royal Rumble. I watched it. I'm, I'm still a wrestling fan. I love the story. To, I not love. I, I do love. I'm very giddy about the story. Regular too. wrestling or WWE? WWE. Oh, okay. But what I want to talk about is at the main event, after the fight, Roman Reigns and this guy named Sami Zayn. Roman Reigns turned his back. Sami Zayn took a chair and hit him on the back. And 51,000 people collectively screamed with an Aristotelian climax. How is that possible? Well, what kind Man? of scream was it? It was Ador a, yes, adoring were, or angry? Adoring. They were. They had been waiting for this for months because the Roman Reigns character had the Sami Zayn character under his thumb and was manipulating him to betray his friend. 
so that he'd come closer and closer and deeper and deeper into the group, become a slave. And Sammy was not doing anything about it. He wanted to be part of the prestige of the bloodline. And he was always, when he was talked down to, he wouldn't say anything. And finally now, when Romans turned his back to Sammy, and he had Sammy's best friend from childhood, it's very Christ-like, handcuffed to the ropes, beaten to a pulp. Roman had the chair himself and was about to knock him out because he knew this was the one link Sammy Zane had to a life outside the bloodline. His last piece of soul. He turned his back then to Sammy and said, he didn't say anything. He handed in the chair as if to say everything. His friend was unconscious, suffering probably 20 kicks to the face. He might not have felt it. But there was Sammy, fully conscious, a steel chair in hand, the leader of this man who had been manipulating, and he knew he was being manipulated, for months pointed to him, you know what to do with the chair, or I hope you know, I should think you know what to do with the chair. Sammy did nothing. A tear, so to speak, fell from his eye. Then the, betray the mental abuser turned back, Roman Reigns turned back to Sammy Zayn, and so do you crying? This is my whole life. Do you think this is a game? I told you to do something. You're not doing it. Then he just went beside himself in a sort of uh, King Lear rage against the elements, turning, twisting, yelling at that corpse thing on the ground, handcuffed, that even though he was unconscious, he was affecting the heart of Sammy. And at that moment, with no one to see except 51,000 people, Sammy took the chair in the back of Roman and Roman fell. Now, I didn't tell you there were two people behind Sammy, the brothers of Roman. They looked at him like a rat had bitten the ankle of Roman. They knocked Sammy out, tore his shirt, the shirt that said bloodline. My point is 51,000 people clapped for a chair shot that didn't even look hard. No one cared about the velocity of the chair. No one really even saw it touch Roman because they saw it before it happened. They saw it with their heart. They wanted to see it happen. They had been tuning in for months waiting for it to happen. They were entranced in a liturgical pipe to the point where that chair shot as slow, as dummied, and as circus as it was, became sublime. Now, that is magic. It's smoke and mirrors. But 51,000 people in a stadium paid money to see an altar known as the ring with a steel chair and a person's back. And both men got up and both men had a drink and both men went to sleep and both men woke up. We, the thing that we think is real, that we really care about, you know, what's the weight, the molecular weight of hydrogen? Obviously, we didn't care how hard the chair hit the back of a human being. All we cared was that the man made the movement. That's all we needed. That's all we needed because we were already liturgically entranced. Now, if it's that real feeling for something that obviously is smoke and mirrors, what if it is possible to go higher levels where it's not smoke and mirrors? 
This is the hope mixed with the DNA that we're built for and made for and that we, we experience in time. And again, it's, it shouldn't, like the Christian call should not feel like some leap into the absurd or darkness. I mean, it should sound like sound, normal, disciplined, take it as it comes, <laughs> lifestyle choice. There's a way to dilute it into nothing, but then there's a way to gradually build it. Yeah. Well, I, I totally can see what you're saying, but I also see the other direction, the the danger that's being built into our society that 51,000 people could be so entranced by smoke and mirrors that they would with one voice acclaim, yes, okay, so this guy deserved it. So Sammy had the right to take revenge, but it's still hitting somebody from the back in a violent move and the people were prepared to not only accept that, but adore it. Adore it. Mm -hmm. And I think the whole culture has been set up to speak with one voice that way about a lot of things. Even, even like, um, you know, Jordan Peterson had this conversation with Joe Rogan this last weekend, where he's talking about an alternate WEF kind of an organization that's going to have people who have a more positive view of what the world could be that, that has governance that's closer to the local level and that um, has some actually um, appropriate levels of action towards things like climate change and in hunger and all of that kind of thing. I mean, it really sounds exciting. But on the other hand, um, it's easy to get a huge number of people worked up against the WEF because of all the things that circulate on the internet being said by people there. Whether that stuff has, whether those clips have been taken out of context or not, who knows? But they can certainly get you worked up against a certain group of people, against the elites of a certain category. And, and if Jordan Peterson does his thing, there'll be clips circulating about that thing. And the other side is going to be all worked up against them. And pretty soon you have 51,000 people on this side and 51,000 people on that side, all filled with hate and rage going out into the streets like the Hutus and the Tutsis. So they've gotten us all worked up into this state, which is, here's the thing. I heard in a message the other day at church, something that concerned me a little bit. And the idea was that we need to detach from things and from reality in order to be um, peaceful in our faith. I thought that sounds a little bit unlike <laughs> Orthodox Christianity. Um, and I don't know why that just popped into my head in regard to this. It must have something to do with this idea of what is real and what is not real. What do you think of that idea of detachment? Is it, that's a Buddhist thing, isn't it? Um, 
I think it, for me, it ties with the ascesis again. Asceticism is submitting yourself to a technique that will make you rigid in order to do some things well. Some things well. It's not a talisman that makes you do magic, that makes you leap beyond nature. It's not alchemy. It's more akin to the pianist example you gave, but also applies to a professional wrestler because a person can't be a professional wrestler unless they go through a diet, a workout routine. In other words, everybody is ascetic. So in the same way, we used to have debates about, all oh, I'm an atheist, I'm a theist. But what we can all agree is the truth is the truth, or reason should be the reason we accept some evidence, or accept, no, reason should be the reason we accept things based on evidence and not based on not evidence. So reason is behind both. So both the theist and the atheist used to appeal to what? Reason. I think nowadays, as the modernist frame becomes this cardboard cutout, oh, wait, there isn't anything behind it. It's being propped up by a two by four. We don't need that. I think what we'll start to appeal to as a third turn behind this side and that side and who's right, instead of reason, I think it will be the question, well, what is their practice and what fruit? Now, I think that will become a weapon, just as reason became a weapon. Well, look at the grapefruit over here. We can take a little bit of that and look at the grapefruit over here. We can take a little bit of that. The problem with that statement is a practice is not the fruit. So I can't just take a few apples, take a few oranges, put them in my you know, quick basket and run away thinking I've got food because you do have food for a day or two, but you didn't bring with you the tree. And even if you would have brought with you the tree, are you going someplace with soil? So the idea of practice, perhaps not unlike reason back in its inception, but as reason became a buzzword, buzzing like a bee without any pollen to find, buzzing around buffalo grass, lost, reason lost, a sheep lost, in need of a savior, it became this disembodied Gnostic one. So too, if we're not careful, the ascetic practice question, which is going to be behind the theist-atheist debates of the future, will become this disembodied basket full of different fruits. What we mean by ascetic is, I'm a, man, I'm a man or woman sitting under my tree. The tree is here. I understand that there are roots underneath. I understand there are branches. The branches are not the world. And the fruit that comes doesn't come at once. And it doesn't come all the time. It's seasonal. And even at that, it's not a unit. Some years are better than other years. And I'm not going to mark it by some arbitrary clock, 12, 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, et cetera. A farmer knows planting season begins so that harvest ends. And then you repeat. What happens in there, that's all specifics. It's what you pray for. You yeah. pray for the anomaly. You pray in the anomaly, widened by the frame of reality. But when we disengage because we want that, you know, I want a little bit of fruit there, forgetting that when I say practice, I'm not talking about the fruit. I'm talking about the fruit with the branch, with the trunk and the ground. Well, so so I, I wrote a note for myself down here. Asceticism and detachment 
and how do they relate? Because when when he spoke about detachment, I know that what he meant was <clears throat> detach from, like for example, let's say one of your pro one of your things is that you you love football, so just detach yourself from it. Or one of your things is that you love uh, you love to eat potato chips. So just detach yourself. And the the idea behind detachment in my mind is that you can just become so one with one with God that potato chips just become unreal or football becomes unreal or whatever. But asceticism is a little different story. Asceticism recognizes that those potato chips have a grip on you and you got to do battle with that in a courageous way on a daily basis, maybe every minute for some people, depending on what the thing is, if it's cocaine or something, you know, if it's some really, really addictive um, behavior, then that battle is a, is a constant battle. And so the asceticism becomes a training ground and a ground for tremendous growth and having to put down deep roots in the Lord in order to be able to survive that ascetic practice. So I don't think ascetic practice is just sitting under a tree and meditating until the world disappears. And then you don't have to worry about the world anymore. Ascetic practice is dealing with the world the way it is. I mean, reality is. I agree with you. And I don't mean to suggest the, you know, the um, isolated, lonely figure sitting under the tree, but as you said, not forsaking the tree as a tree. The tree is the tree is the tree is the tree. That's why he's sitting beside it. He's not going to saw off the branch and run away thinking he's accomplished something greater than the tree because that branch will wither and die. He needs to stay there if he's going to benefit from it, if he's going to have a relationship with it, if he's going to build his, in other words, house beside it. Mm -hmm. I think we have to remember if we want a relationship with God, we have to live with God. You know, he's going to live with us. We should want, I'm not going to say we should want to live with him because that sounds very, well, turn the switch. I want now. Okay, now what? Can I move on? No. Here's some good ground. There's a water source. There's some trees. Animals can graze. First, a man finds his work in the field and then he builds his house. Then he dwells. Then he lives out the consequences. And I think just it relates totally to what you're saying, the agent arena relationship, as we talked about in this corner of the internet. But above that, in order to keep it from being, because the question becomes, are those chips bad because they're keeping me from God? Well, I mean, are we really going to, can I, can I go in a court of, court of law and the prosecuting attorney's looking at me and he's putting his thumbs up and he's like, I got you on this one. <laughs> Before the, before the judge, that over there, and it's a, it's a bag of potato chips, should be locked up, tied away, blah, blah, blah. It's, it's, those chips are good. If we believe Genesis 1, right? Good, good, good. So who, under what authority are we giving ourselves an ascetic practice? If we give it to ourselves, then we can change it ourselves. Do I, do, does Matt Allison really want to be left in charge of his day? I mean, I want to be able to say my yes and no, I am free, but I'm glad someone gave me a job. <laughs> I'm glad I didn't have to give myself a job. 
I'm, I had to go and interview. I had to say yes. I have to continue saying yes when I wake up and go, but I'm glad that what the job is, I don't have to make up every time. It's been given to me as a obedience. But don't we crave that? Because now I get to be a kid again and show up at a place that expects me and not get in trouble, but also kind of you know, be curious because I'm safe. So the one that gives us the obedience of an ascetic practice, whatever that looks like, should not come from ourselves. It should come from a spiritual father. It should come from someone we trust and has a relationship with us. And it might not happen the first day. It might not happen the second, but and it might not be the sort of thing you would ever share with another person because it's idiosyncratic. But if you know that everybody that has an ascetic practice is under a spiritual father, then you all know what obedience is, even though you're not saying what each person's relationship with the bag of chips is. Because my relationship with the bag of chips isn't the same, shouldn't be the same as yours. That's totalitarian. But if you have a spiritual father and I have a spiritual father, and we're both being ascetic with respect to our spiritual fathers making our mistakes, getting back up again. I mean, then we're then we're in the same boat. We're not holding the same oar, but we're in the same boat. Mm -hmm. And again, this this is back to the reality of it. I, you know, there if a person just goes out to a library and finds a book on asceticism, they're not ascetic, right? They're they're on their way. And I'm not saying that there's a certain time when you know you're ascetic. But it's this whole package. It's not just one thing. It's holistic. It has to be holistic. Mm -hmm. Since reality is holistic, the paperclip is more than what the avant-garde will do with it, more than what the compassionate, kind person will do with it, and more than what the creative person with combinatory explosion will do with it. We are the paperclip. Remember that, remember that uh, wonderful parable where Jesus says, the woman who lost her coin dusts everything, lifts everything. And when she finds her coin, she tells her friends, come with me and celebrate. I found my coin, which was lost. And that is the picture of the father receiving the son back from the dead, because that's the longer story that's told after it. It's also the parable that's sandwiched between the lost sheep and the son, the prodigal son who returns. These things are God finding us, how happy the kingdom of heaven is in receiving us again. It's, it's, it takes time that prodigal had to make the steps back and he wanted to make the steps back. Now he didn't have the best reason for making the steps back. Mm -hmm. I'll go and be a worker, but it didn't matter. He came back. So we, I, we don't have to have everything right. We just have to, well, we don't really have to do anything, but we do. We can, we can cut ourselves a break. We know what we need to do. I love that. I love that story of the, prodigal son in the coin and uh my father became a christian probably two months before he died it was a very dramatic very beautiful conversion and maybe someday i'll tell the story but um i wrote in the in the flyleaf of the bible that i gave him afterwards <clears throat> that verse which I can't remember the address of the verse anymore, but that the angels in heaven are rejoicing over every lost one who comes home. 
and it gave me great joy to think of the party in heaven over my father coming back. This has been a delight, Matt. My, my dear friend. Oh, go ahead. I, I, it's recently a few converts came to the church I go to and they were formally welcomed in with everyone. And I watched the priest and afterwards the priest was crying. Hmm. And, and, and I noticed it as a habit because there were tears falling from my eyes too. These things, like the chair shot on the back, we don't know what we're seeing, but we know what we're seeing. And those were, those, and not all tears are the same tears. Mm-hmm. So I love what you said. There, I mean, angels are real. The levels are real. The tears are real. The ladder is real. So let's climb. Yep, for sure. That brought back a picture to me of this crazy hike that we were on in Maui in September. And we got to this cliff. So I've told the story before on the show, I think one time, but we got to this cliff. It's like 10 feet high. And and the guide, and they had built this hike as a easy to moderate hike for people of all ages. We get to this 10-foot cliff. There's no handhold. There's no foothold. And the guide starts going up. And, and he says, come on, this is the path. And I was in front. And I said, you're kidding, right? You're teasing. You must have another path. No, this is it. Well, it was humiliating as all get out because there was a little foothold, but it was almost three feet off the ground. And and I've had some problem with my hips in the last few years. And I had just had surgery on one hip and was getting going to have surgery on the other hip. And I'm looking at this foothold three feet off the ground. And I'm thinking, how am I going to get my foot up there? And, uh, and then I thought about the alternative. We're, we're there with my husband's company. So the alternative is to say, I can't get up that path. You're going to have to send a helicopter in here for me. <laughs> <laughs> right. I wasn't going to do that. So I've got to get, <laughs> get up that path. <laughs> and the only way that I was able to do it, and this is kind of humiliating, but I got one foot on that foothold, but then on either side, my husband had to take one arm and the guide had to take the other arm and they had to, lift me up on my elbows to push me up to the place where about five feet above my head. Then I was able to get hold of a branch or something and pull myself up and get up eight or nine feet up. And for whatever reason, at about nine foot level, they had put a ropes course. So once you got to the ropes, you could kind of find your way around. But, but that first two steps were just nearly impossible. And they were nearly impossible for almost everybody who went, but, but mostly impossible for me. But I couldn't have done it without that hand on either side. You know, it's like it's like uh, Aaron and her holding up Moses' arms, right? And uh, and that by this you will know. By this they will know that you are my disciples, that you have love for one another. Aaron and her, yeah. both sides of Karen, yeah, both sides of Matt, each yeah. other. Yeah. Go ahead. So anyway, and what a blessing that you have some new believers in your church. That's so exciting. So this has been wonderful, Matt. I, I hope we can do it again soon. I liked, I liked this going at it with just a very simple topic to talk about because then we can kind of free associate and uh, because, you know, your mind is so far advanced from mine that sometimes when we have a deeper topic to get into, I'm kind of swimming around at sea. <laughs> it's very nice sharing this part of the year with you, Karen. It's certainly part of the year. I 
I, uh, I'm glad I went to California and, and, uh, and, you know, met everyone. It was just it's a great time. It's a great time. I, I hope you have a good day. I like the, the afternoon light coming in your window. Yeah. Happy sunset. Thank you. Bye, Karen. Good night, Matt.